Well, 2020 is about to finally come to a close, and I know many are ready for that to happen. This has been a very challenging year for, I would say, everybody. We've all gone through some level of faith being tested by fire in a variety of ways. For some, it's been overcoming tremendous adversity that you did not expect when this year began. For others, it was a year where you had planned out all kinds of things. You had goals, dreams, visions, and plans, and most of that did not get executed the way you thought it would be. For some, it was a real test of patience, just constantly waiting and trying to see what's coming around the corner of it without knowing really what is coming. It was a time for loneliness for many and still is. It was a time of provision being supernaturally provided where many were curious and wondering, how am I going to make it? I'm thinking back of the people that I've prayed with this last year over a variety of things. I remember at times where people were concerned they were going to lose their jobs or be furloughed or, or whatever the case might be, and we've watched how God has provided supernaturally along the way. It's been a time for sorrow for many. Some have suffered great loss in family members, companies, jobs, many things. For some, it's been a test of submission because we've had many things imposed onto our lives or requested of us that we've never done before and trying to navigate what that's supposed to look like on a day-to-day and week-in, week-out basis, whether it's at school or in our jobs or even just to go to the store. And each one of these things becomes a care. We, we pick up a care that is to be brought to the Lord, but you think about all the things this last year that we're going to take care of. And that's a phrase we often use, is I need to go take care of that, or you know, I have just many cares on my heart today, or I'm, I have this concern that we are going to deal with. And so we use that word care often. And in today's uh, lesson, we're going to learn something about what to do with these cares. And as we finish the book of 1 Peter today, and are examining our faith being tested by fire and contemplating this whole last year in God's faithfulness. It's why our, our team led us in song today and so many that were speaking into the faithfulness of God. Because I think it's healthy for us to be reminded that several months ago, many of us wondered, what's next? And are, am I going to make it? Well, here we are. And yes, we did. And so you, you learn the faithfulness of God and, and God keeps reaffirming that our faith is being tested by fire, but yet He is always faithful. And so today in 1 Peter chapter 5, we look to finish this chapter if possible and finish the study of faith under fire. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Now, last time when we were together this way, we looked at the verses preceding this that specifically dealt with Peter as an elder writing to the other elders, the other pastors. And he was speaking into the, the, the character qualities that a pastor should have and the motive behind ministry and things that can also taint the motives of ministry. And so there was an aspect of, of being an overseer and taking oversight of ministry as an elder. But then he comes along and says, Now, 
Therefore, likewise, you younger submit yourselves to the elder. And here's why. Because the elder was to also submit. Because to be a servant and to be a leader is to serve people. When you put yourself in the place of servant, well, now you are no longer dictating your own terms, your own schedule, your own way, and your own stuff. No, you're, you're putting yourself subject unto others. Well, likewise, you younger submit yourselves to the elders. We yes, all be submissive to one another, so that wipes out any lines of authority, really. Or I shouldn't say authority. It wipes out the lines of hierarchy because we're all to be submissive to one another. Elders, younger, doesn't matter. We submit ourselves to each other. And here's why. This is one of the tests of our faith under fire, actually, is our willingness to submit in relationships. Now, I talked about submission earlier in this book, and when we looked at submission to the government and submission in family life and submission in our workplaces. And so we've already studied this word submission, but in this case it's speaking, again, to submitting to one another. In the body of Christ, elder, younger, full submission in each other. And here's why. Because it's to be clothed with humility. Submission always teaches us humility. Because if I'm going to place myself subject unto someone else, I'm also I'm trusting them. I'm now responding to them in a position that they are in authority over me. Whether they're younger or older doesn't matter. It's one of the things I enjoy working even in a ministry team that there's times when, when we're functioning this way. And For example, Caleb may be in charge of something that we're doing. And, well, I submit to that. Whatever Caleb wants me to do in that situation, though... That if you looked at a hierarchy chain, maybe I'm higher on the ladder than him, but no, that's not the way that's supposed to work. And so in that particular moment, no, I, whatever Caleb needs me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And so that's what our relationships are designed to work this way, but God tests this submission, always testing our pride. And here's why, because Satan is the king of pride, and he's always working angles of pride. He's the king over the children of pride, in fact. And so we know this, and so our pride is always being tested. Pride always says it's right. God resists the proud, so don't ever miss this. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We are to be clothed in with humility. It's not a false humility that just fakes it and looks like it's humble, but it's truly a humble heart placing yourself subject to someone else. Pride is always saying it's right. Pride wants to do its own thing on its own time and its own dime, the way I want to do it. No one's going to tell me what to do. Pride isn't very teachable. It's often not a teachable spirit at all. Matter of fact, often what the phrases of pride will come out is, you know, I just like to learn things the hard way. I just want to learn it myself and do it myself. Well, what that really means is I don't like to subject myself to the Word of God and take the wisdom of the Word Instead, I want to take the wisdom of the world and see if I can make it fit and if I can live through it and survive it or somehow I can dominate over it when in reality, humility says, you know what, I need instruction from the Word of God to live life and I want to always order my life according to His Word. And so instead of living life through the school of hard knocks, you live through the walk of wisdom and that's what humility does. So here's what happens. When my pride swells up, God resists the proud. And so then those trials come because God sees that in me and now God's going to 
knock those edges of pride off of me so I learn humility, I learn submission, I learn to cast my dependence on Him and then cast my cares. You know, oftentimes why we carry our cares with us, our burdens with us, is pridefulness. Because we're just going to work it out on our own. Our instinct is to try to fix our own problem on our own time, our way, and then when all else fails, we will go to the Lord's throne and then ask Him for help once we've exhausted all of the resources instead of starting with the care at the throne. And it's pride that will do that. When I am in a place of humility, I confess my dependence upon the Lord. That's what humility is doing. You know, it's interesting in Scripture, Psalm 55 says to cast your burden on the Lord and He shall sustain you. He'll never permit the righteous to be moved. Philippians 4, a very familiar text. If you watch what happens when we are anxious, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, if you watch what's happening there, I'm going to God with prayer, with asking. I'm going with a supplication. This is a request of mine. And if you watch what's happening, I'm doing this then with thanksgiving. So I'm thankful to the Lord in advance for the provision that He's making. Thankful even for the the difficulty or the challenge that I'm facing in the moment. I'm thankful for the fellowship I'm experiencing with the Lord. I'm thankful for how God's mighty hand is going to intervene here and how I can trust Him. I'm thankful for the faithfulness of God. And you begin to start giving thanks And it doesn't make the problem go away. It contextualizes the problem that I can take all of this care, place it at the feet of Jesus, and know that He sees it all perfectly and will then bring to pass what should come to pass. And I'm trusting in His mighty hand, the mighty hand of God, who has always been faithful to be the provider. He's the strength. He's the power. He's the direction. He's the one who opens the doors. And I'm also trusting in His mighty righteous hand that, you know, He sees all things perfectly that I cannot see. He will never allow the righteous to be moved. And so I already know that I can trust Him so I can take my care to Him with thanksgiving and let my requests be made known there. And here's what then happens. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will then guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It will rule. To guard it is to rule it. God's peace rules your heart and rules your mind when you take your cares to the throne. That's why we're instructed to do that. We know this and in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, we are instructed to come boldly to the throne of grace. You can come boldly. You are a child of God. If you're saved today, you can come boldly into the throne room of God and make your request to the Lord. You can cast your cares to the Lord. He already knows what they are anyway. And here's what happens. You come to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And God dispenses then the appropriate measure of grace for that moment right now. Always. God is faithful in this. But be careful because pride will carry the cares instead of giving them to Jesus. We are instinctive in this, in our flesh, and that is we might even go to the Lord in prayer and then seemingly give it to the Lord, and we no more stand back up when we grab hold of that thing and walk off with it again, and now we're carrying it around again. Because at the end of it all, we, 
It's a lack of trust on our part. We struggle to trust God that He sees it perfectly and is going to do the right thing. It's the, it's the, the test that the disciples faced. Remember when they all got in the boat and Jesus said, let's go to the other side. And they get out in the, uh, halfway across to the other side and a storm comes and opposes them tremendously. Jesus is asleep in the hinder part of the boat. He's obviously not worried about the storm because He's the Lord of it all. He sees it all perfectly. He already said we're going to the other side. But the, the disciples are rowing and they're doing all that they can. And they, once they've exhausted all of their resources and they come to their wit's end, the boat is now filling with water. They come to Jesus. Just think of it this way. They finally come to the throne of grace after they've wore themselves out and can't do another thing. And now they come to Jesus. In the first words of their mouth, Lord, do you, do you not care that we perish? It would seem that Jesus didn't care. That was the assumption of the disciples. Is You don't care that we're all going to die out here in the middle of the water? And Jesus, of course, well, what's, what's the struggle here? The faith is the struggle because I already said we're going to the other side. And if that's what I said, that's what we're doing. The storm cannot stop us. And so then Jesus does what only God can do. He stands up and says, peace be still, the storm quiets, and they go to the other side. It's a great lesson of a test of faith that Peter himself would have experienced this very thing to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you then in due time, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Let's start there. What a great blessing to know that we can come to God at any time with all things who already sees it and the measure of grace is already ready to be dispensed. But know this, God resists the proud. And I can look back on my own life and times when I was operating independent of God. I didn't intend it to be that way. But you just find yourself in the rhythm of doing life without the instruction so much of the Word without an intimate interaction with the Lord in prayer. And you just find yourself, you get up, you still eat breakfast, you get up, go to work, do your thing, whatever that is, and, and the daily rhythms of life just keep happening. Now there's all kinds of struggles. And sometimes you step back and everything is hard. Why does everything have to be so stinking hard? Everything I touch turns to problems. And then finally you wake up one day and realize, you know what? God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. I've been rowing against the Lord, building my own kingdom, not focused on His at all. It's pride that would not come with my cares. It's pride that wants to carry all my burdens. It's the pride that wants to learn things the hard way, and it's pride that thinks He can do it. And here's why Peter instructs us we're in a raging battle, always. To stand faithful first with humility. Okay, we're going to be learning to stand today. Stand faithful in humility. And then stand faithful against an enemy. Verse 8, be sober. Be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. 
The instruction is first, we have an adversary, so we better be sober about that. So the instruction here is be sober. Well, what does it mean to be sober? Well, we know what drunkenness looks like, and drunkenness could be drunk on all kinds of things, not just on substances, though that would be out of bounds. And so I could just speak plainly. If you're drunk on substances, and it's controlling your mind and your emotions, and you're out of bounds, it's sin. Because you're not under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. You're, something else is controlling you. That is out of bounds in the Scriptures. There's no place for drunkenness because we're instructed to be sober. We have an enemy. You can't engage the enemy. You can't understand the enemy. You can't discern the enemy if you're not sober. But we can be drunk on way more than just substances. We can be drunk on emotions as well. We can be drunk on... Um, Fear, we can be drunk on anger, we can be drunk on worry, we can be drunk on all kinds of things. We can get drunk, seemingly, or so intoxicated with the things of our culture and all that goes on around us. Media just constantly pouring in and we, and we give ourselves to it. And, and you can get all up into politics and drunk on politics, drunk in religion, drunk in studying end times and just trying to figure it all out all the time and trying to flip over all the rocks to see if, oh, this is the one and... and Good grief. We can get intoxicated on our physique and what we look like. We can get intoxicated in our hobbies and our interests and all these things. And at the end of the day, what is all that? The things I get drunk on are the things that are of my kingdom that I want to build as the king. They have nothing to do with God's kingdom. And so my sobriety here is key that I need to be sober-minded because I have this adversary, the devil. And Peter calls him out. He obviously knows very well what happens when you are not sober-minded. You remember Peter's stories through the Gospels when he wasn't sober-minded? When he got emotionally engaged and he was so arrogant in pride at times where when the Lord Himself told him that Peter... The cock will crow tonight before you, and you will deny me tonight. No, not so, Lord. Not me. I'll go with you to the end, no matter what. And remember Jesus' words to him, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. And I pray for you that later you'll be converted. Jesus knew. Peter, because of his boldness, his leadership, quite frankly, his love for Jesus. He had this huge bullseye on him that Satan wanted to take him out. And he wanted to sift him like wheat. And in the night of Jesus' arrest and ultimately leading to his crucifixion, it was Peter who denied the Lord. Peter knows all well what it looks like to not be sober, to be prideful, to be consumed with your own things in your own kingdom. He's the one that rebuked the Lord to his face. Jesus said, I'm going to go and I'm going to be crucified and on the third day I'll rise again. Not so, Lord, not you. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Peter was speaking in such a way in his arrogance that he's now speaking on behalf of the devil himself. And given over to that. Why? He wasn't being sober-minded with a kingdom of God in perspective. Instead, it was all for him and how he wanted it to look and what it was all about in his life. And I want you to consider today, right now, is your world consumed 
with the kingdom being God's kingdom, His stuff, His people, in the expanse of God's eternal spiritual kingdom? Or is it consumed, drunkenness literally, intoxicated with things that will not last forever? They will get consumed and they will be gone. The scripture teaches that is drunkenness. We are drunk on all kinds of things. And the enemy then gains advantage everywhere possible. Peter instructs, be sober, be vigilant. We are to be watching unto prayer. That is really the term in that. Because there's always an enemy that's on the move. Satan is not stagnant. He's always on the move. He's always seeking advantage. And he's looking for ways in which he can take your faith and flip it upside down. Which is why Ephesians chapter 5, Paul said the same thing. He said, see then that you walk circumspectly. I love that word because you think of circumference. You've got your eyes all around and you're watching what's going on so that you're always observing. You're observing the times. You're observing what's happening here. And you're sober-minded about it so you're not getting all out of bounds and emotions and other things so that you can see what's happening. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. A fool says there's no God. And what happens in Christianity sometimes is things start going bad and we throw our hands up and, oh, God's not for us and He must be against us and where's God and all this? And I, don't, I just don't get God in these moments. And what are we, we are speaking as a fool. As if God doesn't exist or God doesn't care. But we're to walk circumspectly not as fools, but as wise. And here's why. Because this adversary, the way Jesus describes the adversary, the devil. You see it throughout the scriptures. But Jesus said this. He's a thief. He's come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. No mercy with him. Jesus called him out in John chapter 8. He's a liar. And he's a murderer from the beginning. Jesus called him out as the wicked one. The deceiver the one who works in subtlety, the one who's the provoker. We remember the stories where he works through subtlety to snare someone into moral failure. He's the one who provokes and provokes someone to examine their own kingdom and, and exalt themselves as a king. As a murderer, pers always purposing to destroy. And because of Satan's pursuit, and I believe, I believe Satan's real, I believe the demons are real, I believe in the spiritual darkness because the Scripture speaks into it, and because of that, we are instructed in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, that we better be, we are called to stand against the principalities and powers and the spiritual wickedness in high places. We are called to stand. Well, how do you stand? Well, you stand faithful, sober, and vigilant, but here's how the Ephesians instructs us. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're instructed to do this. Yep, grab the shield of faith. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Make sure you wear your belt of truth. Grab your sword of the Spirit. Put on the helmet of salvation. And make sure your feet are covered with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You've got to soldier up. 
Because you have this enemy who's constantly firing these fiery darts and works in subtlety and craftiness to try to move you off course. And he works this way in our immaturity and in our ignorance at times so that we would be blown and tossed about with every wind of doctrine and slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. They're always just looking for the opportunity to leverage this and do what? To speak false doctrines or things that are not true, that are baited and sound like it's true, but it's not true. And, and this is why Jesus or Paul warned that Satan is so clever, he can adorn himself as an angel of light and he will deceive even the elect. He's very clever. So how do I know the difference? How do I see this? You submit yourselves, James says, submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So you have the victory. You have the power. You don't have to be all worried every night, wondering, is Satan looming around the corner? No, submit yourselves unto the Lord. When you submit yourself to the Lord, resist the devil and he will flee. If you notice these key words in this, God resists the proud. That could be us as Christ followers. I could be very prideful. God can resist me. But here's what he teaches. When you place yourself in a position of humility, you resist the devil and he flees. Quite a connection there in the word resist. You have this incredible power of God in you, the power of the Holy Spirit and he, and he gives the, Peter gives this encouragement here. We're not alone in this. First Corinthians chapter 10 teaches this in verse 13 that no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Peter affirmed this. You're not alone. This is happening in your brotherhood in the world. The same temptations and struggles and persecutions and sufferings that are taking place in any of us in this room are also happening anywhere on the planet. You're not alone in this thing. But the key phrase in that, God is, you say it, what is He? God is faithful. God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will instead make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That's why we go to the throne of grace. Lord, I need your grace to bear it. I need your grace to see the way of escape. I need your grace, Lord, to walk in the wisdom to understand what's happening here. But you know what? It's key to be sober-minded. Because when I'm not sober-minded, I won't be coming to the throne of grace. I'm going to be running around and worried and fretting and all uptight over all kinds of things. And instead of taking it to Jesus, I'm going to wear myself out trying to figure out what's going on in this world. Verse 10. We're called to stand faithful in suffering, but may the God of all grace, who's called us to the eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while. How long's a while? There's no definition to the while. I don't know how long a while is. But after you have suffered a while, God does this to perfect, to establish, to strengthen, and settle you. It's God's objective. We've learned this from the beginning of the book of, of 1 Peter. God allows suffering in our lives. Satan has orchestrated all this junk to happen to try to topple your faith, to try to crush you. He's come to steal, to kill, and to destroy the sovereign God of the universe allows this knowing that 
the very Spirit of God Himself is in you. And so greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. So now He empowers you to stand faithful in the midst of all the chaos that this world can muster with great hope, knowing that come what may, if I lose it all today, if I die today as a Christ follower, I'm in the presence of the Lord. So I can live with this constant hope and promise in the Lord. And so here's what God is accomplishing. To perfect me, to establish me, to strengthen me, to settle me. This perfecting is to mature my faith. That I become more like Christ in suffering. To establish me means the God to be more resolute, to make me stable, to confirm me. In fact, 2 Thessalonians verse 3 says this, But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. He's the one that does that. When I place myself subject unto Him, but also in humility confessing my dependence, you know what He does? Well, He establishes me and guards me from the evil one. He strengthens me. Remember Paul said this whenever... The, and after Paul pleaded with the Lord three times and the Lord came back and told him that my grace is sufficient for you. The Lord's the one who said this, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And it was revealed, God's power through Paul was then revealed when Paul was in his place of weakness. He's calling upon God for dependence. And now what Paul could not do in the flesh on his own, God supernaturally does it through him. And now God gets the glory to Him be the glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Which is exactly what God is wanting to do with us. And then He settles us and roots us with a foundation that's settled in the peace of God. And all of this is unto the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. Peter signs off at the end of this letter that would have been distributed as we know, to people who have been persecuted and scattered for their faith. He has some companions with him in this. And so in verse 12, he says, By Silvanus, whose also his name is Silas, that we know that was a side companion to the Apostle Paul. By Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. They obviously weren't observing COVID at that point, but peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. I want you to notice quickly the, the names he calls out. Silvanus or Silas. Silas was a man who was commended by the church to go work alongside of the Apostle Paul. He, didn't, he wasn't very long with him before things got really rough. Eventually, Paul and Silas were put in prison together. But it was Paul and Silas who also sang praises in prison that ultimately led to the salvation of a Philippian jailer. Silas was a faithful man. And that's what Peter describes him. He is a faithful man. But something else we learn about Silas is Silas is an educated man. Having especially traveled alongside of Paul, he experienced 
the education and the training and a lot of things that Paul would have been able to provide. But here's what's cool about Silas or Silvanus. Though he is more educated, has experienced much, he placed himself subject unto Peter. Serving then as kind of the the scribe who would write the book. You learn much of a man clothed with humility and how God then supernaturally worked through his life. But here's Peter's comment about him. He's faithful. He's a faithful man who is faithful with Paul. He's faithful with Peter. He's trustworthy with all things. He served as a wise steward. He was not ashamed of the gospel. He continued when times were difficult. He finished the things that he started. And he was a man full of faith, which was what faithful means. He's a man full of faith, not trusting his own resources, but in God's resources. Paul mentions Silvanus specifically as a faithful man, but he also mentions Mark. I find this one fascinating because it is this Mark that I believe was also the travel companion with Paul on his first mission journey. Mark went with Paul for a short season and when persecution and suffering and troubles came, Mark quit and went back. He did not prove himself to be faithful. He failed. When it was time for Paul and Barnabas to then go on the second journey, they wanted to go back and look at all the churches and visit them and strengthen them and exhort them. Barnabas said, here, I'll get, let me go get my nephew Mark. And Paul said, no, I'm not taking him. He's unfaithful. He's not reliable. He'll flake out on us again and go back. And Barnabas says, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, he's grown. He's not the same man he was. And those two, Paul and Barnabas, had such a hot contention over Mark that those, those two guys parted ways. And Paul says, you know what? I'll take Silas. He's a man commended by the church as a faithful man. I'm going to take him. If you want to take Mark, you go right ahead. Well, here's what's cool about this whole story. Barnabas takes John Mark back under his arm, disciples him and mentors him, and continues to end the ministry. It's later that you will see his name pop up again. While the Apostle Paul, who rejected him as a travel companion on his second journey, when Paul is in his final days in a Roman prison waiting to give his last testament, he called for John Mark to come see him in prison and to bring some things to him. And it was Paul who referred to him as a faithful man. It is now Peter that also affirms this man is faithful as an alongsider in the gospel. I find the story of that so fascinating because at any point, any one of us, when we are purposed to stand faithful and true to the Lord, maybe we are the ones that fell off at some point and got consumed with the things of this world and fear over, overwhelmed us and we got the cares of this life took hold and maybe we just kind of shriveled up and sat down and did not continue in the mission that God gave. But let me just tell you, God's not finished with you. And that's the beautiful part of John Mark's story is God wasn't finished with him. 
God built that man to be a strong and faithful man who now in the midst of intense persecution is now alongside with Peter and ministering to the churches that are also suffering greatly at the hand of wicked and unreasonable people who do not have faith. And now he's a faithful man. Standing faithful and suffering. Peter's message this whole time in this book, he began with one key phrase that I want to share with you again from chapter 1, and then we're finished. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, listen carefully. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The rest of this letter comes out of that living hope. To put in the context all of the suffering, all of the persecution, all of the struggle, the faith that's being tested in the fire, how to walk with God in wisdom, how to be sober-minded, how to be vigilant, how to understand we have an adversary. This is what it looks like to be faithful. And all of this falls under this big umbrella of the living hope that we have. And what is that hope? The Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who resurrected from the dead, and because Jesus Christ is victor over sin, because He lived a perfect sinless life, and was crucified to pay for my sin, not His, but was the substitute for me. He's the victor over sin. But He's also the victor over death because He raised from the grave alive on the third day. And because of that resurrection, I have the hope, the promise, and even the power within me as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to walk in this world in the power of God and to know that on my last day, whenever that will be, and I take my last breath, I am in the presence of the Lord Himself who is the victor over death. All of that is our living hope. We are a people who live the hope because our trust is in the one who is still alive today, who died and came back to life. There is no religion on the planet that has a living hope because all other religious figures died and are still dead and can offer nothing. But our Lord Jesus Christ is alive. And so therefore, this t especially this time and season of, of celebrating Christmas and the fact that God Himself would come to this planet and redeem us who are not worthy of that and then give His life a ransom for many and then raise from the grave after being crucified. It is the hope that we have. I don't know about you, but I, I go in the stores and I look in the communities and I see the faces of people around the world and their eyes are empty with no hope because they don't know Jesus. And as Christ followers, our lives should not reflect those as those without hope because we have the living hope, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. You have the message of hope. If you know Jesus, to bottle that up within you and never share that message, well, you leave a world left in darkness. And the very reason for which God has left you on this planet is to share the message of the hope that we have in Christ because no one knows the hope. They don't realize hope is in a person. It's not in a thing. It's not in an institution. It's not an organ organization. It's not a government. It's not some uh, leader. 
No, it's in Jesus. And my prayer is that we as a church would be faithful, stand faithful to proclaim the message of the living hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to bow your heads with me as we consider this this morning. Do you know the living hope, Jesus Christ? Is that settled in you? Confident today in your salvation? Do you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? Have you confessed with your mouth, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God in the flesh. I believe that you died for me and you paid my sin debt. I believe that you rose from the grave alive on the third day and I believe that you are not only the giver of eternal life but the one who forgives me of my sin and cleanses me of all unrighteousness. And maybe today's the day you need to come before the Lord and ask Him to save you. As a Christ follower today, the call of the the hour is to stand faithful. Are there things in your life today that need to be set away from, put away? Maybe we've intoxicated ourselves and we're not vigilant in some areas and and we've just gotten consumed with cares that we're not taking to the cross. Now we just keep carrying them around. Are there things today that need to be set down today at the feet of Jesus not to be picked back up again? Are you the king of your own kingdom? Or are you the servant of God's kingdom? It's time, since the word's been opened, it's time to do business with God. Allow God's word just to permeate into our heart, His spirit to draw us to Himself and to reveal the things that are, are going on inside that no one knows except us and God.